and take the Bible that you brought with you, and hopefully you do have one with you. If not, there's one in the pew, but we should never get over the fact that we open these pages and this is where God speaks. Uh, Not just a historical document, though it is historical, not just a memoir of religion as some might have it, but the very words of God spoken through prophets and apostles that through them we may know Him and in Him, Christ, we may know God. So we're in John 14. I'm going to begin reading at verse 7. As you find your place, we ask, Father, that You would come among us in power, grace, that You would give clarity, that You would focus our minds just for these next uh, few minutes, that we might see and hear You speaking through Your Word uh, to us as a church and to each of us individually, that we might hear those things from You that are needful for our souls, that You might correct our errors, that You might expose our sins, that You might untangle our confusions and our unbeliefs, and that we might be enabled by Your present Spirit to see Jesus and Him only and to believe for the salvation and strengthening of our lives in Him. We ask in Jesus. Amen. John chapter 14, verse 7, right after saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. In verse 6, Jesus continues and says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, speaking to His disciples, He says, You do know Him, And have seen Him. Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know Me, Philip? Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on My own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me, Anything in my name, I will do it. So much for us to see here. And so much that we need to hear in light of this crazy and confused world this morning. Because the more we fear the the instability of this broken world around us, the more we need to rely on the stabilizing power of Almighty God with us through Christ. And that really is a major theme of this passage. The God we need is present, the God we need is present with us in and through Christ, and He is empowering us, speaking of the church, to accomplish His greater works as we rely on Him through prayer. Let me say that again because I bungled it. The God we need is present with us in and through Christ, and He is empowering us, the church, 
to accomplish His greater works as we rely on Him through prayer. And so I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what fears you may be facing. I don't know what concerns are weighing on your heart. But here's what I do know. And here's what I want to remind you of this morning. Wherever Christ is present, God's power is at work. And where God's power is at work, there is life, there is hope, and there is certainty about the future in His hands. And so I want us to look at this this morning. And first, I need to make a theological point, and then we'll go on from that to make some applications. And so first, the theological point that we see here. That is to to see that the, the mutual indwelling of Father and Son lays a foundation for us to understand the empowering presence of God with us through Christ. That was a mouthful. Let me say it again. The mutual indwelling of Father and Son lays a foundation for us to understand the empowering presence of God with us through Christ. That's verses 7 through 11. Now, I say mutual indwelling because that's what Jesus says in verses 10 and again in verse 11. Verse 10, He says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? Verse 11, Believe Me that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me. And so do you see the the mutual indwelling that's taking place there? The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. And we'll come back to what that means in just a minute, but I just want you to see that 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 is the key idea here, this mutual indwelling of Father and Son. That's going to be the foundation He's going to build on for us. Okay, back to verse 7. Verse 7, then Jesus speaking to His apostles says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you do know Him and you have seen Him. Now what is Jesus' point there? Well, He's telling them that they've already had a personal encounter with the living God. By knowing Jesus, they already know the Father. Again, back to verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. There is no access to God except through Christ. But now He tells them that the reverse is also true. Everyone who comes to Christ comes to know the Father. Do you see that? Everyone who knows Me, Jesus says, has already come to know the Father and is already in the process of seeing the Father. This this has already taken place because in Jesus the Father is present. Colossians 2 verse 9 says that in Christ the whole fullness of God's deity dwells and we receive the fullness of God's presence in Him. All that God is, is present wherever Christ is. And that's why He says in verse 7, from now on, from the moment you have met Me, you're seeing the Father, you're knowing the Father. So from the moment you come to know Christ by faith, you begin to see the Father and know the Father in Him. Now, Philip, and we haven't seen Philip since the beginning parts of the Gospel, but Philip Philip is evidently a guy for whom knowing God is the point of life. He, he gets that. 
That's why I believe he became a disciple. He wants to know God and, and, and he's been drawn to Jesus for that purpose. And so Philip seizes upon this in verse 8. Yes, Lord, he says. That's right. Show us the Father. Let us see God. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Literally, it will be sufficient. That will satisfy us. We'll be, we'll be satisfied if you just give us a sight of God. So what's Philip asking for here? Well, apparently he wants a visible manifestation of some sort. Pull back the veil, Lord. I mean, you've done some really wonderful things. Your miracles have been really cool. But now will you just rip the heavens open and let us see the Father Himself? Will you give us this, this visible manifestation of God like the, like the kind they had in the Old Testament? What he really wants is a theophany, if you know that word. Uh, the word theophany means a, a physical manifestation of God's presence on earth. You know, God making Himself seeable. And you remember maybe how Moses had asked for that in Exodus 33, verse 18. He says, Lord, show me Your glory. Let me see You. Let me see Your face. And how did God answer? Do you remember? He says, well, I'll show you my goodness. I'll, I'll make my greatness pass in front of you, but you can't see my face. No one can see my face and live. And so God then manifested His presence in a physical form to Moses. And we're told that Moses saw not the direct, full-on view of God, but the backside of His glory, the, the afterglow of God's presence. And Philip is saying, yeah, something like that. That'll satisfy us. That'll be enough. Little realizing that what he was actually Getting that very moment standing before Jesus was so much better than any theophany would ever have been. Right? Because wherever Christ stands, the glory of God is there. Wherever Christ is, God is present in all of His fullness. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. All those theophanies in the Old Testament that Peter, that, that Philip thinks that he wants to see, uh, they, are, they are nothing but a veiled appearance of Jesus Himself in His pre-incarnate glory. He's wanting a glimpse in a form not understanding that the very God Himself is enfleshed now, standing before Him in all of His fullness. That the, that the God He longs to catch a glimpse of is there in His fullness, and Peter can't see it. I keep saying Peter. You know what I mean, right? Philip. Peter's over in the corner sulking because Jesus rebuked him a few minutes ago. Philip is the one we're talking about here. Philip can't see it. Can you see it? Do you ever find yourself longing for some supernatural manifestation of God that's better than just knowing Jesus by faith? Let me give you a heads up. There is nothing better than knowing God through faith in Christ. There just isn't. John 1 verse 18, this Gospel begins by saying no one has ever seen God, meaning seen Him in His manifested, full-on glory. Nobody has ever seen God in that way. But 
the only begotten God, Christ Himself, who has come to us from the Father's side, He has made Him known to us. What Jesus gives us as we press in close to Him is the fullest possible knowledge of God that we can have this side of heaven. So notice how Jesus says that here. And really, it's a rebuke now to Philip. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, three things we need to see here. This is really good. First, He rebukes Philip, and along with Him, I would think us, saying... If you've walked with Jesus any length of time at all, you really ought to know Him by now. If you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you ought to know Him by now. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says that the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That there really is no excuse for a professing believer to fail to see how intimately we now know God through the face of Christ. And so Jesus says to Philip, Have you been with me this long and still you don't know me? Meaning, know me with intimacy and friendship? After all this time, do you not know me? Do you understand that Coming to know Jesus is not just coming to a place of salvation. It's coming to the person of God. We are brought into an intimate union with God through Christ and into a relationship with Him that where He begins to fill our lives with His presence. Could Jesus be saying to you this morning, Have you been with me all this time and still you don't know me? Have you walked with me these many years and still you don't, you don't get who I am? Are you, are you still letting worry and fear keep you up at night because you, you just don't realize who's with you? Are, are you toying with these silly sins that you still hang on to because you don't know how satisfied you can be with me? No, he says, open your eyes and, and see who I am. Believe me that I am bringing you into a place of real intimacy with the Father. Which brings us to the second thing to see. And that is that we are then commanded here to believe Jesus really is who He claims to be so that we are satisfied that God is present with us through Him. We're commanded to believe who Jesus claims to be so that we are satisfied that in Him, God truly is present. Notice how he says this twice. First, he asks it as a question in verse 10. And then he gives it as a command in verse 11. Verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And he asks it in a way that says you should. And then he gives it as a command. Verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. 
Notice, here is something that we must believe as Christians. What is it? That the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. This is that mutual indwelling of Father and Son I mentioned earlier. If you're looking for the theological term, uh, it's the term uh, perichoresis. If you ever need that, don't know why you would need it, but there it is. But, but, but it means that the Father and the Son so dwell within each other in the Trinity that each has a living presence in the other. That they are so wrapped up in one another that you can never say you're dealing only with the Father over here by Himself or only with the Son uh, in isolation or for that matter only with the Holy Spirit whom we'll meet next week beginning in verse 16 as if they could be isolated one from the other. At any and all times, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together as one God because, well, they are one God. I mean, this is basic Christianity. This is where we sink our feet on a firm foundation. There is only one God, but that one God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that you have never encountered a generic, plain vanilla God because such a being does not exist. You always meet Him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what that means is that the God we deal with is indeed a personal God. He is a God who can be known. And the way that He is known is through the person of Jesus Christ because that's His mission, to show us the Father. Again, remember, no one has ever seen God in His naked glory. Nobody's ever climbed up to heaven and caught a glimpse of God as He is in His spiritual essence. We cannot do that any more than Moses could have done that. We would have been crispy critters. But when we have seen Jesus by faith, when we encounter Him, we are encountering God Himself. We are coming into the direct, personal presence of God the Father who is in Christ and we get to know Him. Which third tells us that to know God truly in Christ, there's truth we must believe and there's evidence we can observe. First of all, we must believe what Jesus tells us about Himself. Again, verse 11 is a command. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe me, Jesus says. Do you understand if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Those who deny the full deity of Christ are outside the faith. They're lost. We believe in the deity of Christ because He tells us that He is in fact God. And the Word of Jesus is enough for our faith. Amen? We, we should believe this because He tells us it's true. It's enough that He tells us. We must believe this for us to believe it. And, and so He could stop there. But He doesn't stop there because He's so gracious. And he goes on to give us even more. Second, he tells us not only must we believe this because he's told us it's true, but he also tells us that we must see the evidence of this truth by watching Jesus doing what only God can do. Verse 10 and 11 again. 
Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Literally what he means there is, I'm not, this isn't coming up out of me as, as this man standing before you. It's not just coming up from within my own thoughts and hearts. No, the Father who dwells in me is doing these works. Believe me that I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Take a hard look at Jesus and you will see that no one ever did the things He does. Who else has opened the eyes of a man born blind? Who else can change water into wine? Who else can raise the dead who have been dead four days? Who else can heal the lame or feed 5,000 people with a sack lunch? Look what Jesus does and ask yourself, who else can do these things? And you'll see as millions before you have seen, only God can do the things that Jesus does. That's the point. But then Jesus says, even if you can't just take my word for it, though you should, look at my works. And so we're given here both the word of Jesus and His works. Word and works. And so if you're here this morning and you're struggling over this issue of coming to faith in Christ, let me just give you a little pointer here. Look, look, look to Jesus. Listen, listen, listen to His word. Go to Him and hear what He says and watch what He does and you will see there is no one else like Him. He is in the Father and the Father is in Him and through Him you can know God. Look and believe, listen and understand for that is the way to faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. It's the way to come to faith. Dear one, it's also the way to grow in faith. The steady looking and listening to Jesus. That's the theological foundation. Second, so because we know who Jesus is by faith, He goes on to tell us that we also now have a mission that He has empowered us to undertake. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. So, truly, truly, I say to you, you know what's coming. Right? There's the alarm. Kids, I always want you to catch at this. Whenever Jesus says truly, truly, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to listen up, pay attention, perk up, because whatever comes next is very, very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I'm going to the Father. A couple of things. First, genuine faith begins with believe, but then leads to do as we follow Christ. Do you see that? There in verse 12? Whoever believes in Me, there's the believe, will also do the works that I do. We heard this same thing in the verses Kyle read earlier in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There's There's the believe. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works. There's the do which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Believe comes first and is then followed by the do. You don't do to be saved. You believe and are saved. But once you are saved, you will do for the glory of God. Why? Because now God is working 
through you. The Father is in the Son, and now the Son is in you by faith, and the works that God does to show Himself to the world are now being worked through you. And and so we do nothing to be saved but trust in Christ. Get that clear, right? What do you do to be saved? Trust in Christ. Believe the promise of the Gospel. But then when Christ saves us and begins to invade and come into our lives, we will do much for His glory. As James says, a living faith in Christ will move us from passivity, just sitting there, to participation in the work of God in the world. We show our faith in Jesus by doing God-empowered works through Christ that God prepared for us for His glory. That means second, by ongoing faith in Christ, we, the church, he means, will do even greater works than Christ on earth. Verse 12, again, And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Now, wow, that's mind-blowing. But let's make sure we understand what he's saying because there's lots of ways to go off the rails here. What does Jesus mean when He says that we will do greater works than these, the ones He's doing, because He goes to the Father? What's He mean? Well, first of all, let's talk about what He does not mean. He does not mean our works will exceed His in power, majesty, grandeur, greatness, any of those things. Right? You're never going to out-Jesus Jesus. You're just not. And I've heard the fake miracle workers on television and the charlatans on YouTube who say, you know, we're little Jesuses running around doing even greater things than Jesus Himself did. Big claims. But let's be clear, they're lying. Right? It's all talk, no truth. I mean, when I finally see Kenneth Copeland walking on the water on national television and and calming storms in real life, not just claiming to, maybe I I won't even believe him then because he's a liar. You're not going to out Jesus, Jesus. That's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? Well, the key to understanding what he's saying comes at the end of verse 12 with the phrase, "...because I go to the Father." Whatever these greater works are, they are tied to the fact that Jesus has returned to the Father's side and has now done something there for us that will enable these greater works through us. So what is it Jesus does once He returns to the Father? Well, look down in verse 16. It's what we're going to look at next week. So He says, I will ask the Father... And He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, talking about the Holy Spirit, um, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells in you and will be with you. And then verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you're in Me, and I am in you. Now here's the key to understanding this. When Jesus returns to the Father, He will send the Holy Spirit upon His people. That's us, the church. And then through the Holy Spirit, Christ will dwell within His people. Christ will be present among us so that through the Holy Spirit, Christ dwelling in us will do these greater works. 
Because wherever Christ is present, God is present. Wherever Christ is at work, the Father is there doing His works. And so the contrast here is not between Jesus doing His little bit of work and us doing greater works, you know, because we're really something. That's not the contrast. The contrast here is between the works Jesus did while here on earth before the cross and resurrection and the greater works Jesus will do through us, His Spirit-empowered church, after His resurrection and ascension. And what is that greater work? Well, it's the work that the Father gave Him to do that He's been talking about all through John to make God known and to save a people for His glory. Amen. That's the work that He has given us to do in His name. Matthew 28, 18-20, final words of Jesus to His church. He comes and says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Notice, this is who He is. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the earth. I'm in you through the Holy Spirit. I'm with you. And because I'm with you and in you, you're going to all the nations and you're going to baptize them and teach them in my name. This is the greater work Christ is doing now in and through His church. This is the greater work the Holy Spirit equips us for. Not some razzle-dazzle miracle show on TBN, but the mission of proclaiming Christ to the world. Did you understand that's why we're here this morning? Did you understand that's why you're here and not in heaven? We are here to know Christ and to make Him known to the world. This is the greater work that we're called to. Okay? So how is our work greater than what Jesus did back then? Well, think about it. After three years of faithful ministry, right before Jesus goes to the cross, how many believers were there? They could fit in this room. Think of that. They could fit in this room, every last one of them. Five weeks later, After the Holy Spirit falls upon the church, 3,000 souls are added to the church in one day. A few weeks later, it was 5,000. Within weeks of that, they wouldn't fit, not only in this church, they wouldn't fit in this town. That expansive growth of Christ reaching every nation, tribe, and tongue through the Spirit-empowered preaching of the Gospel. Bringing the presence of God to people group after people group, nation after nation, home after home, raising the dead spiritually, opening blind eyes, healing broken souls, uniting all of them together as one people. That's the greater work. That's what Christ is doing right now through His church in America, in Ukraine, in Africa, wherever, as we yield our lives to Him. And so because we believe who Christ is, we have a mission. And because we have a mission, here's the third thing, because we have to keep these together, we must pray. Christ accomplishes His greater work through us as we depend on Him by believing prayer. That's the final point. Verse 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in My name, I will do it. Now, these are verses you know that people love to rip out of context and make say what they absolutely do not say. 
So if you're looking for a verse this morning that says Jesus will give you every little thing your little heart wants to make you happy here and now on this planet, this is not it. In fact, you won't find that verse anywhere in the Bible if you're being honest with the text. No, context really matters. You can't just pull these verses out and say, oh, looky here, Jesus is going to give me everything I want. No, pay attention to the context. Ask the question, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, He's talking about that greater work. It's in the context of doing that greater work of taking the Gospel to the nations that Jesus gives this promise. Now, having that in mind, this is still a massive promise, isn't it? But take it out of context, like like the spiritual frauds do, and you make God a liar. Because you're denying His clear Word. I mean, James 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. No, don't prostitute this verse by trying to make it say something that God never said. Okay, so what does this verse say? It says, as we depend on Him, God will give us everything we need to accomplish His mission, His greater work, And all we have to do is ask. John Piper makes the point that prayer, we should think of it this way, prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie, not just an intercom to the kitchen for more food. We don't use prayer to order drinks from the bar. We use it to call down help from heaven as we seek to accomplish the mission God has given us to accomplish. So so prayer is not a divine DoorDash. You know, that app that you use to get comfort food to your house when you don't want to go out. No, prayer is a lifeline tying us to the command center of God's supply chain so we can get His work done in His way. And so when you misuse prayer by trying to make it into DoorDash, it malfunctions. If we're just trying to get the goodies, it will not work. We must be on mission. And so, a couple things about prayer then. It's when we're on mission that we're told we can ask anything in Christ's name. Again, verse 13. Whatever you who are doing this greater work, whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in My name, in Christ's name. You do know that's not a magic charm, right? Those aren't magic words. You get to tack on the end of the prayer and get what you want. I don't even think God cares whether or not we use the words in Jesus' name. Now, I tend to do it just because I want to keep the focus on Jesus, but... That's not the point. So what is the point of in Jesus' name? Here it is. We can pray with bold confidence that we will be heard when we pray for the things we know Jesus has authorized us to ask for. In His name means by His authorization. I'll give you an example. Kurt McClure worked hard all week remodeling the men's room. Uh, men step in there, ladies wait until later, but it, it, it almost looks as nice as the ladies' room now. So thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Sam McClure. He was up here helping out. Alex Starkey was helping out. I appreciate these guys. They gave a lot of effort. But all week long, as Kurt is working on that remodel, he would run over to Home Depot, because you know you never get everything the first time you go. And Kurt would um, use the church's credit card to buy stuff. Now, how can he do that? How can Kurt, 
take the church's credit card to Home Depot and go buy stuff. Well, he can do that because he was authorized to use this card for that project. Now, he was not authorized to go to Home Depot and just get whatever he wants for his house. You know, hey, I think we'd like a new fireplace. Or, or to get stuff to sell on eBay. He wasn't authorized for that. That's not what the card is for. But anything he needs for the project, he's authorized to get. God has given us a credit card called prayer and authorized us to use it to get anything that we need for His project. We can say that He has pre-authorized us to ask for and receive everything we need to accomplish His mission. Now, He's going to answer in His own way and He's going to redirect us because we don't always know how we ought to ask. And Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and helps, helps us translate our silly asking into that which is righteous and good for us. But all we have to do is go in His name that is based on His authorization and He's going to make sure we have what we need to accomplish His mission. That's how prayer works. And so because we believe who Christ is, we have a mission. And because we have a mission, we must pray. Second, we must pray with this goal in mind, that God be glorified in us. Again, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So, here are two things that you can sort of ask yourself as you are preparing to pray for anything. If you want to pray with boldness and power, think of these two things. First, am I authorized to pray for this? Am I basing this request in any way on the mission Christ has given us, on the mission Christ has given me? Now that can be pretty broad. For example, if you're a parent... God has given you the mission to raise your children the fear and admonition of the Lord. And, and so in that task, you can't... Well, let me just say, you ought, you've got to pray. Right? And you ask God for wisdom and how to bring this child along, for wisdom and how to teach them, the wisdom to deal with their rebellion, for, for, for His help for them to soften their heart because you, you, can, you can tell them what they need, but you can't reach in that heart and change that stony heart. You need heavenly help. You call down the resources of heaven on behalf of that child and ask God to not only lead you but to work in that child because you've been authorized by the Father to raise this child in the fear and admission of the Lord and that's opened a wide gate for you to ask for lots and lots of things. If you're a husband, you've been given the mission to love your wife as Christ loved the church and to lead your home in godliness. And so you can and must pray, God, help me. I'm a sinful man. Help me when my temper flies and I'm thinking selfishly. Help me to love this wife as Christ loved the church because I'm not up to that. Help me to, help me to do the things. Help me to work today because I don't feel like it, but I need to go. Help me, Lord, to be right. Help me use our home for the sake of your kingdom and our neighbors around us. A wide door as you're on mission. If you're single, and really for all of us, God has given you a mission to serve Him by serving those around Him. And you you can pray on mission saying, Lord, help me be faithful at work today. Help me, Lord, as I think about Ukraine, if there's something I need to be doing there. Help me with this neighbor that I just don't like and they don't like me. And how I can take the gospel to them and how our church can... Do you see, this is not a little thing, this is a big thing. Am I authorized to pray for this? Go to the Word and see His authorization. Second, you ask the question, can God be glorified by answering this prayer? You ought never to pray for anything God couldn't be glorified in giving you. Because if God can't be glorified in giving it to you, number one, you don't need it. Number two, He's not going to give it. 
And so will His greatness be seen by people as He answers this prayer? And so this is a check even on your own heart. Am I asking this to increase my own comfort? To enhance my own reputation? Or do I have His reputation and glory in mind in asking this prayer? What is my motive? And if your motive is wrong, you stop. You go back to the Lord. You let Him realign your motive to match His. You you search His Word for what He is doing in your life and the world. And then when your motive matches His motive, you pray with great confidence that He's going to answer. And then third, final thing here. You pray, with all that in mind, you pray the bold way that you would go ask a friend or a father to provide what you need. Notice that in verse 14. This is so good. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now look at this. Look at this. We get to ask Jesus Himself. He didn't just open a portal and say, go through that portal to pray. He says, take my hand and let's go and get what you need. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. We go to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Spirit and we ask for His help. We ask for what we need and we do so boldly. We have confidence in going before Him because He is our friend. His death and resurrection had purchased this access into the Father's presence and into a relationship with the Father through Him. And He has promised to give everything we need to accomplish the mission He has given us. As a church, this is the question we ought to be asking as we do any planning for the future. What is the mission God has given our church as we gather together in His name? What is the mission? And what do we need to fulfill that mission? And if it's His mission, He's going to provide what we need. Because we believe who Christ is, we have a mission. And because we have a mission, we must, must pray. And as we pray, we do so with bold confidence because we have His promises. Let me close with 1 John 5, 13-15, written by the same disciple who wrote this Gospel. And there, a few years later, John says this, I write these things to you who believe. See how the connection here? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We begin with believe. You come to eternal life by believing. You you receive the gift of Christ by believing. But then he goes on. To believers, he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will... Same thing as in His name, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked from Him. Because we believe who Christ is, we have a mission. And because we have a mission, we must pray. So Father, we come and... Lord, there's a broad open door here for us to step through, first of all, by faith, trusting in Christ, in whom the Father's fullness dwells. 
In coming to Christ by faith, Lord, anyone who hears the Gospel and comes by faith has access to the Father. Oh, that You would draw even now, Lord, the one whose heart says, Do I believe? And they would hear the response, Yes, believe in Me and You will be saved. And they would trust You. And then we look to You, Father, and we, we, we hear Your promise that You have called us to a mission. It's not just about us. It's not about me. It's not even about my family. It's about us as Your people in Your hands for Your purposes that You may be known and seen in this world. And You were drawing a people to Yourself through us. Oh, make us a people who are on mission with You, trusting You, yielding to You, going where You say go, doing what You say do. And as we do that, Father, You have given a broad open door for us to pray and ask for those things that we need, to believe that You will provide them. If we need it, we'll have it as we ask and submit and surrender for Your sake and for Your name's glory. Amen.